In the novel You Are Here by Karen Lynn Greenberg, a once bustling mall is about to shut its doors for the last time. For decades, it's held a community of residents from a small upstate New York town who cut their hair at Sunshine Clips or had a bite at Chickadee Chicks in the food court or stopped at the Book Nook to browse the latest bestsellers. Now, word is out that the mall will shudder. Those who spend every day at the mall working, shopping, mall walking, dread the closing day. A shocking act forces them to face the inevitable closure and the ways they live their lives. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to author Karen Lynn Greenberg about her novel, You Are Here. This novel, You Are Here, takes place mostly in a mall, in the Greenways Mall. And I was thinking about how much a setting like this can be just this like self-contained community mm-hmm. um, with people who see each other all the time. I've worked in a mall before when I was much, much younger. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you see the same people all the time. So tell me about this setting. Tell me where you where you got this idea for this setting. Yeah, I mean, exactly what you said. I was seeing it as just such a uh, setting that was just had a lot of potential for bringing people together and creating a community and creating a community that I think is maybe a little different from most of the types of communities we might encounter in our day-to-day lives because it brings together people who are very different from different backgrounds, maybe different ages, who are there for different reasons. Because I think about a lot of, you know, communities where, you know, um, you know, thinking about like a workplace, well, there are oftentimes people who are engaged in the same type of work who are gathering there. Whereas at a mall, yeah, it's a workplace, but there are, you know, all sorts of people coming from different, re- for different reasons. You know, I have in this novel, a couple of characters who work at the mall, but then there's also, you know, a woman who's 89 years old who comes there for companionship. And that's not at all the reason anyone else, you know, comes. Um, another character is nine years old and he comes because, you know, his mom really can't afford to hire a babysitter. And so he comes and she's a stylist in the mall salon and he sits there and does his homework. And then he ends up encountering the woman who's 89 and they become pretty fond of each other. And that was a relationship I was thinking, you know, might not have happened outside of that space. So yeah, I just saw it as a place with a lot of potential for bringing um, all sorts of characters together. I just love it. And the opening chapter takes place at Sunshine Clips and inside this mall. (laughs) I think any person who's ever had their haircut in a mall <laughs> would yeah. recognize the space and all the yeah. sort of, um, you know, accoutrements of a, of a mall beauty shop. I just love it. How did the space come to inspire your, there was a story, it's the first chapter of the novel titled Sweeper of Hair, which I mean, on its own, I think it, it's just like this, this marvelous story to begin with. But tell me Thank where you. Sweeper of Hair came from. Yeah, I mean, so so I have had my hair cut in a mall before. I found that, you know, for a while I was like moving um, for for jobs and I just always felt like, okay, a mall, like just let's just go get your hair cut at the mall. Like, I, I don't know, it's probably not true, but I thought, well, it's you're sort of on display there in a way that you might not be at a salon that's like tucked back on a street. So, you know, nothing, nothing too bad can happen, right? If you're just like <laughs> choosing, you know, somebody off of Yelp. And so, yeah, so I was just like, all right. So, so I you know, kind of had that, that space in my, my head, but, you know, I was actually getting my haircut 
not, not at a mall salon, but I was getting my hair cut and I was having a conversation with the woman who was cutting my hair and she was talking to me about scissor sharpeners, people who used to come and go kind of door to door, go to salons and they would sharpen the, the scissors right there. And she was saying that, you know, that's just not a line of work that people do anymore. And so now you have to send your scissors back to the, the company that you bought them from to get them sharpened. And she was talking about her scissors came from Japan. And so she'd have to send them to Japan and, you know, they'd be sharpened there and then they'd sent, be sent back. And so I was just getting my hair cut. And I was just thinking about this idea of just like endings and things that don't exist anymore. And then, you know, I just started thinking about malls too. And so that's why I set the, that first story in that mall salon. Cause I thought, you know, kind of symbolize this idea of, you know, the dying mall, just the, you know, something that was once vibrant and lots of people went to and just how, how it's changed so much. When I was writing the first draft of this, you know, I was really thinking of um, e-commerce a lot and how that has shaped how we shop now. But then, you know, since that first draft, there's obviously COVID and also, you know, keeping us away from some of these public places as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, just really started with that story that the woman who was cutting my hair told me and then thinking about endings in a place that maybe kind of symbolizes that. I just love this idea. And, and it, it does run through the novel about uh, things that that end, things that are replaced or displaced. Yeah. There's this little, this very young YouTube influencer, <laughs> um, <laughs> this young kid that gets under the skin of, of another character named Tina, who I really want to ask you about almost as if the, the uh, this younger uh, kid who, who's an artist could somehow replace Tina, who has these aspirations, had these aspirations for a long time to be an artist. And then she ends up working at Sunshine Clips, cutting hair. This idea, and we see it also with the 89 year old woman, Roe, the idea of things that are replaced, objects that are replaced, or I would say also the mall, the idea of a mall, I think has really changed a lot. I, I don't know if people can discern it if they, you know, you know, if they go to a mall all the time, but malls mm. are very different, I think, than they used to be. But the idea of the scissor sharpener, also, I was stunned by, in, in, in very pleasant ways, by this idea of the character having, explaining to Jackson that she has to send her scissors back to the company. You know, it's just, it almost seems like a, like a lost art or something. It was just a, such an interesting detail to me. And so you learned yeah. that while you were getting your haircut. And that, so this makes me think as you're saying this, that stories are everywhere and uh, you know, you have to be open to them, but I'm, I'm hearing this from you now that you're just sort of a collector of stories. Yeah. People. I love yeah, it. absolutely. Right. And I mean, I think if, if that's, one of the nice things about working on a novel, if some if you hear something and it's interesting, you can figure out, you know, how does how can you maybe fit this into the the novel, you know? And so there's there's plenty of things like that that were just things that I encountered, you know, on TV, on the radio, or just seeing something in life or hearing something that I thought, huh, how how might this intersect with one of the characters? And so, you know, an example of that is just, you know, tiny houses. The one of the characters who works in the mall who is the manager of the bookstore, he built a tiny house for his family. And that was just something that like, I kept seeing cropping up like on social media, on TV. And, and I was just like, what would it be like to live in this house? That's like 300 square feet, you know, it's like the size of a room and, you know, in a bigger house, um, you know, and what conflicts can come out of this particular space. And also like, 
can this, this object, this house kind of symbolize like regret, you know, you build it and you, you have to live in it. Right. Um, so yeah, with him. And then also, you know, I was just, you know, reading about, uh, I just saw something online about border collies and that that's also that same character who's living in a tiny house and he's kind of trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life. And he cooks up this idea of a goose chasing business and with border collies chasing geese away from like basically um, grassy areas like college campuses or um, golf courses or cemeteries, <laughs> places like that. And that was just something I just saw on the internet one day. I saw, oh, this is a business, you know, and like who would want to do this business and, you know, how would you do this business? So, yeah, I mean, I think just kind of kind of seeing things and just, yeah, and they end up filtering into into my fiction. Kevin is the character who builds, who's the manager of the bookstore and builds the tiny house. He's ABD. He's all but dissertation. He's he's maybe not going to finish. We don't know, but he's yeah. married to Gwen and they have these twins and then they have a dog. So I, I think about that tiny house in Joan's backyard and you're right. It is sort of like you build a house, you have to live in it. And it's the source of a little bit of conflict, certainly from, from the character of Roe. This idea of finding stories, the you know, the border collie story and so on. I'm wondering now about the idea of magic. So Jackson is the nine-year-old boy, he's <laughs> son of, of Dina. He loves magic. And I was thinking about the idea again of displacement or replacement and his interest in this aging magician named Larry, who has these events where he doesn't really do magic anymore, but he gives away the secrets yeah. of magic tricks. And Jackson really wants to learn magic, which as I'm reading, it seems like such a, such a quaint little hobby, such a low tech kind of hobby for a young kid in contemporary mm -hmm. times. But mm -hmm. then Larry will soon be totally out of this business because of his Parkinson's. And it's interesting that this kind of old school magic it's not a, a replacement or a displacement, but it's it's just sort of Jackson discovering it. I mean, it's not a Chris Angel, right? David Blaine. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, it's interesting, right? Because that that character, um, it was the magician character. It was based on a character when I was a kid, the sort of the coolest birthday parties in my town. We'd have this ma magician guy would come. And I think like looking back on it now, I think like, was he like kind of a hack? Was he not great? But like, we all thought he was amazing. And like one trick I remember, um, it was, I think before dry erase boards were like in every classroom, right? When there's still chalkboards. And I remember this one trick where he had, I think it looked like sort of like an artist palette. And then like he'd write on it and then he'd run his hand across it and everything would disappear. And we were like, wow, you know, but now like that was a dry erase board, I think, you know? Um, so yeah, I was thinking about that kind of stuff. And then I was also thinking about, you know, there's all these, you know, talent shows on TV. And I just, you know, stumbled into some stuff just, just like Jackson does on YouTube, where basically anytime a magician does something on one of those talent shows on TV, someone will hop on the internet and say, well, this is how it's done. And I thought like, 
that's sort of sad to me, right? Like I spent many years being enthralled by this guy who had these tricks that were not great tricks. And, you know, we had no idea how he did them and we were so excited by them. And then now everything, like even these like, you know, amazing tricks that probably costs a ton of money to, to do. And, you know, you need all these like techs working on them, like any of them, you know, an hour after they appear on TV, somebody's like, well, this is how you do it. You know, and to <laughs> me, like that, that takes some of that magic out um, of some of the things. So, yeah, I, w- I was thinking about that with that character where he is kind of able to like figure all these things out. But then, you know, because he's nine, because he doesn't have money, because he's a kid, he can't do these, you know, what he calls spectacular tricks. And so he's trying to figure out like, yeah, these like small, um, you know, inexpensive tricks that he can do with just like everyday things. Yeah. So um, my brain is on fire. So I'm thinking about, (laughs) I'm thinking about, um, your uh, short story collection called Vanished as mm-hmm. you're talking about the magician making things disappear. And then I'm thinking about how Roe in her really poignant, lovely relationship with Jackson, uh, how do I say this without sounding totally corny? So so she brings back cameras and wristwatches mm-hmm. and these things that are a little bit outdated for him to enjoy. I mean, he wears, Jackson wears the watch that belonged to Rose's husband and he takes pictures with this camp, with this, you know, old camera. I love, I just love this idea that, that things will, that things reemerge too, that things don't just disappear and go out of date and, you know, are, are buried and forgotten, but that there's something happening too, with this kind of appreciation of things. And, I don't want to give too much away, but the idea of yeah. developing the the film from the camera and being able to see, mm-hmm. I'll just say that much because that's such a gorgeous yeah. part. Of <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. I mean, the, these are things like I would say like nothing in the book is autobiographical, but I think there are these like elements that are things that I think, you know, how sad that we don't do that anymore. I mean, I remember, you know, you shoot your rolls of film and then you go and you drop <laughs> them off somewhere and you wait and you don't know. And you know, maybe out of the 24 photos, like 10 of them have like a finger over them, right? And they're terrible. (laughs) And it takes like a week to find that out. Whereas now you just so easy on your phone taking these pictures. And I thought there's there's something kind of lovely in that surprise of what you're going to get. Or even, you know, I mean, like, I don't wear, you know, a a wind up watch anymore. Like I have a smart watch, but I think, you know, it's so sad. Nobody's wearing watches anymore. And once in a while I'll see somebody wearing one and it just strikes me as just so strange and kind of beautiful that, oh, somebody actually has a watch on their wrist, you know? And so, yeah, like thinking about these things that have disappeared, you know, for the, not, not everywhere, people obviously still wear watches. People still take photos on film, but you know, um, these things have been replaced in ways that are, you know, easier or just quicker to access. And so I think that that's one of the things I was thinking about a lot in this book. You know, there there are sort of some beautiful things that come out of maybe these more difficult ways of of doing things, you know, especially I was thinking about film photography. Yeah, I I love all of those sections of the book. And it makes me think about Rose. So Rose, this character, talk about, you know, invisible people as a as a woman of a certain age. You know, and she's sort of uh, alone in the world, although she doesn't necessarily have to be, but, you know, her life is complicated. I'll just put it that way, Mm -hmm. just in terms of how she chooses to live in her personality. But she does go to this mall and, you know, she gets her hair cut and Tina cuts her hair and they 
they do forge, you know, a kind of a relationship, just a, a, a kind of a routine. And it's very, it's a very moving thing, you know, and I, I know of like mall walkers and, you know, people mm-hmm. who go to the mall and have a cup of coffee and want to people watch and feel a part of things. And so I was thinking about that, but I was thinking about how sort of intrinsic Tina, who I sort of consider the, it's really hard to pick like the heart of the story and everybody is so compelling to me in this novel, but there's something special really about Tina too, that I, that I find so interesting because of these aspirations that I was talking about, you know, and she's a single mother of this little boy. She's so industrious. She's so hardworking. She's so compassionate too. So I I don't know. I think, I feel like, like Tina in a way allows um, for road you know, in the same way that Roe allows for these objects to reemerge in Jackson's life um, and give them another life. I feel like Tina does that with Roe and, you know, Roe's complicated, yeah. right? But, right. But, um, but Tina is, just seems very open to to the idea of, of Roe. Yeah. I mean, that was a relationship that I wanted to explore. And I don't even know if relationship is the right word because, you know, Roe is a character who, you know, has... I think made a lot of mistakes in her life and kind of wants to right the wrongs of the past, but doesn't know how to, and she doesn't know how to connect to people. And she actually really likes Tina. She likes Tina as a person. She likes Tina's son, Jackson. She likes spending time with them, but she doesn't know how to move it beyond the relationship of going to get her hair styled every week. She doesn't need to get her hair styled every week. She's not going anywhere. You know, she's mostly sitting at home being nosy, looking out her window, And so she, you know, but she's going because it gives her, you know, an hour or so to talk to Tina. You know, I think these characters, one of the things I was thinking about that kind of connects them is that they all feel stuck in a certain way. And I think with Tina, she feels stuck, you know, in the particular path she's taken down um, in life and, you know, thinks about could she have done other things, but she can't, you know, for practical reasons, she can't pursue a career as an artist because that's just not a career that has any certainty in terms of you know paychecks you know and Roe is stuck on this path of really not knowing how to connect with people and I think Tina is one of those people and and you know in the first chapter there's already conversation about you know this mall might be closing and then um not I don't think this gives too much away by the second half of the book it is established that the mall is for sure closing I think Roe is the, the person, even though she's not depending on the mall for, you know, her, her paycheck, she's depending on it for the most significant companionship, you know? And so she's the one who's the most devastated by the mall closing because she doesn't know how to continue the relationship with Tina and Jackson. You know, I mean, they live in the same town. She could say like, Hey, do you want to come over for dinner? But she just doesn't know how to do that. And so for her, it feels like an enormous loss because she's going to lose this connection that she's forged in this place and doesn't know how to move it beyond this place. It's so poignant. It's, it's so powerfully moving. And thank you. I, I just love the structure of this novel and I love that it's set up by month, September, starting in September and and going through June. And it has these alternating points of view. And you also do this super interesting thing where we might learn about something from, say, Tina's point of view or Jackson's. And then 
in a later chapter, in a later month, it's reinforced or retold from the perspective of Maria, say, or Roe or someone else. You come to another month, it's almost like ripping the, you know, the month off the calendar, the, the paper calendar mm. on the wall and mm. seeing what's coming up and who's telling the story and now what's going to happen. It's, it's just kind of genius. I have to tell you that it, it was just, a, it just worked so beautifully. I really appreciate hearing that. Um, and basically the structure was essentially how I, as somebody, you know, who had spent many years writing short stories, kind of figured out how to get myself through a novel. You know, um, I had tried uh, to write a few novels in the past that I just kind of couldn't, like one of them, I just couldn't finish the narrative. The other one, I did finish it, but I felt like, you know, not enough happened. And so, you know, I, I told myself, okay, like you need to figure out how to write a novel as a, as a story writer. And at first I was actually thinking of this as a linked story collection. Um, but I think like by the time I got like maybe three or four stories into it, I realized, okay, it's actually maybe starting to move more towards a novel because things are dependent on knowing what happened, you know, before in the way I think, you know, in some linked story collections, I think you can kind of just read a story independently, no matter where it is and still, you know, feel like you've gotten a complete narrative. But yeah, and so for me, it was, okay, let's move through, you know, the 10 months leading up to the mall's closing. Um, and so that will push you forward in time, at least. And then for me also, as somebody who's used to writing stories where, you know, you write 20 pages or so in one character's perspective, then you can move on to another story, you know, and um, have another character and explore the other character. For me, it was kind of the fun way to be able to sustain a narrative, but still kind of have some of the pleasures of story writing of moving, you know, from, from character to character. And uh, I really appreciate what you said too, about, you know, seeing a character kind of externally from somebody else's perspective and then getting into their minds. Cause I think that's something that, you know, in a typical, maybe 20 page story that I wouldn't get, you know, I, I think it's hard. I mean, you certainly can do it, but I think it's a little bit harder in a short story to switch perspectives. So to be able to say like, okay, here's, you know, 20 pages of Roe looking at Kevin and thinking he's an idiot. And then like 50 pages later, we get into his mind and yeah, like, you know, he does some <laughs> things that are still, you know, like, mm, why is he doing those things? But then I think hopefully you understand him better and maybe he becomes more sympathetic character by the time you get into his perspective. So yeah, I mean, definitely um, the structure was just the way to get me through writing it. So so thank you for, for your comments on that because that, that's really nice to hear how it, you know, um, for you as a reader, how it, how it worked. Oh, it worked beautifully. I mean, I, I hope mm -hmm. people listening to this, if they haven't read your story collections, will chase them down and read them because Thank they're you. gorgeous and you're such a great story writer. Um, but, but this, you're novelist, <laughs> this novel, it works oh, thank you. for different <laughs> reasons. So the characters in this book, they seem to all want to change and grow. They all have mm. interests in other things. I mean, even Kevin, who, you know, we might see as somebody who, you know, didn't reach his, hasn't reached his goal. He's, he's still creating other goals. And it's so interesting to me. And they ultimately have to adapt in order to keep in some way to their aspirations. Mm -hmm. And some of the characters, you know, they're harboring secrets or secret goals like Tina, that they have to wait a long time to give themselves permission to even talk about. And that's so human. 
-hmm. And then some of the younger characters don't take quite so long. They don't wait, you know, decades, we we figure out. Um, And they show us that maybe aspirations are a little bit less about dreaming and more about action. Like this is something I love about Jackson Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and Maria too. And Annie for that matter. I, I'm, I look at them and I think like, yeah, like they're really into uh, walking the walk, not just talking about Mm -hmm. it, but about action. Um, So, you know, the, the idea of this is so interesting to me where things are shutting down, things are, you know, sort of seemingly coming to an end. And instead there, there is all sort of this, still this living life, still this action and activity and not to give too much away. Everybody needs to read this book and see what happens But (laughs) with every single character in this book. And it's just, it's so real and it's so, but it's still so refreshing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think what's interesting, right? This idea of characters having, having aspirations, I think, as you said, I think it's a really human thing. You know, I find that I think because I'm a writer, I'll oftentimes have conversations with people and I'll be really surprised when they say, well, I'm working on a novel too, you know, and people who are, you know, really successful in completely different careers, you know, um, that have nothing to do with writing. And, you know, and so it it always sort of amazes me to think like, oh yeah, everyone kind of has their secrets, right? Everyone has their secret aspirations and everyone kind of, even if they are doing well in what they're doing, I think kind of always dreams of something else, you know? And so, so that was one of the things that I was thinking about a lot and just, but then also this idea that, it's hard to be a lot of the things these characters want to be, right? You know, an artist, a magician, you know, even Kevin thinking about all these businesses that he wants to run. And so, you know, some of these characters are keeping these things secret because they're they're thinking, I don't want to talk about it until it happens. Whereas Kevin's the, the one character who does talk about everything. And then yeah. um, that creates a clash between him and Tina because she's harboring secrets about what she wants to be. And, and as is her, her son, because I think they're both characters who are like, well, let's see if it happens. If it happens, we talk about it. Um, whereas Kevin is always saying like, well, I have this idea and I have that idea. I'm going to raise bees. I'm going to, you know, have a tiny house building business. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of, I was thinking a lot about just kind of how people deal with their dreams. Do they talk about them? Do they hide them? And then can it cause tension between the characters in terms of, you know, how they let the world know or don't let the world know? Karen Lynn Greenberg, thank you so much for talking to me today. What a thrill and what an honor to get to talk to you about You Are Here. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Karen Lynn Greenberg is the author of the novel You Are Here. It's published by Counterpoint Press. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>